0: I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. Season one of Private Equity Deals focused on owners you know— Season two focuses on companies you know. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com.
1: All opinions expressed by TED and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast.
0: On Episode 6 of Season 2 of Private Equity Deals, Brent B. Shore discusses Selective Search. Brent is the founder and CEO of Permanent Equity, an investor in small family-owned private businesses that it buys with no intention to sell through investment vehicles with 30-year lives. He's well-followed on Twitter and a past guest on Capital Allocators, and that conversation is replayed in the feed. Selective Search is the highest end matchmaking firm in the world. It helps its busy, successful clients find long-term committed relationships. As Brent describes, it conducts executive search for love. Our conversation covers the matchmaking business, deal assessment and dynamics, enhancement during the four years of permanent equities ownership, and future plans. Season two of Private Equity Deals is brought to you by Canoe Intelligence, whose technology allows investors to streamline their alternative investment process through AI-powered document collection and data extraction. To learn more, go to canoeintelligence.com slash TED. Throughout season two, Griff Norville from Hamilton Lane, a Canoe client and investor, We'll describe how Canoe enabled Hamilton Lane to massively increase the efficiency of processing thousands of fund investments and in turn assist Hamilton Lane in scaling to an 800 billion dollar juggernaut. Griff joined Hamilton Lane 13 years ago and focuses on leveraging data and technology for Hamilton Lane's research, monitoring, and reporting. In today's segment, Griff discusses how Canoe improved Hamilton Lane's research and decision-making process. How did you first come across Canoe?
2: I remember meeting Canoe in late 2018. They had been incubating in a family office and they were just spinning out and starting up a, a new commercial operation. They really understood this industry well, which was key for us. There's too many groups that try to tackle the problems in this industry without really understanding the nuances of it. We followed them for about a year. We ran a proof of concept with their technology that really blew us away. High accuracy rates and what they were extracting from the data. And we stayed really close using their data, hands-on, on top of the software, putting it to use, and designing a pilot program to get started. We were one of their early clients in late 2019, early 2020, and then our investment came alongside that.
0: What was the impact on your operations process from using Canoe?
2: So you remember our strategy here is to expand the scope of the number of managers, the number of commitments we're tracking, and the depth. I think it's underappreciated how deep LPs want us to go these days. It's not just about what their exposures are and what the cash flows are in and out of their investments, but it's about the operating metrics at the company level, the GIX classifications at the company level, what their exposures are, what their risks are. And we need to spend time on that higher value activity. What we've been able to do with Canoe is automate a lot of the initial process around document collection. So Canoe can go out to these investor portals with automation grab the documents, bring them in, organize them, rename them, make them readily available to us. Then it can extract that data. And every month it feels like Canoe is getting more and more intelligence across its global investor base, that that its user base to extract more and more off of that document. Then it can validate that data. And so we've automated a lot of the efforts, the quarterly efforts to take these financial statements in, organize them, store them somewhere we can access, extract that initial data out, And then the software alerts us to those documents we need to spend more time with, put that human touch and help train it. And that's really been beneficial to us.
0: As you've integrated Canoes technology into your process, what are some of the metrics that you've used that give you confirmation that
2: it's been effective for you? The key metric that we always highlight is this idea that an individual here, an operational individual at the Hamilton Lane team can handle 20 times more documents. The software itself is automating so much and extracting so much from so many of the documents that the individual here does not need to dive deep into those documents. They can spend more time in the really tricky, hard-to-understand documents, and the technology is improving You know, every month, it feels like. But the 20 times over is a huge stat we, we think.
0: Please enjoy my conversation with Brent Short. Brent, great to see you. Yeah, Ted's girl. always good to see you, man. We're going to replay the old episode to give a good full history of you and permanent equity and adventures, but why don't you just give kind of the elevator pitch on permanent equity?
1: First of all, thank you so much for having me on. So the elevator pitch. So permanent equity buys companies that have between three and $20 million of free cash flow, owner earnings, as we like to think about it. Typically, we're writing checks between ten and forty million dollars, somewhere in that range, and we're buying typically between fifty-one and eighty percent of the company. Although we will go up to one hundred percent of the company depending on the situation. So, these are small to medium-sized businesses. They're successful. They're good at the thing that they do, and maybe need help in the business of business. So, they're in a typically an adolescent phase. So, we're agnostic typically to industry. Some industries we like more than others. But they're all too big to be small and too small to be big. They're in this kind of like in-between awkward teenager stage of business. That can be hundreds of employees or that could be 15, 20 employees. It just depends on the situation. When you're looking at businesses
0: across any industry, how do you assess the relative merits of different businesses you review?
1: What we're looking for is one, durability of the actual value proposition that they provide. Our swimming pool business, we joke that until people stop dipping their bodies in water for pleasure, we'll be fine, right? The durability of people enjoying their backyards and wanting to build pools, we think is a pretty enduring thing, especially in the Southwest. With selective search, I think that people are going to be looking for love and romantic relationships for a while. I don't think that's going to stop. We think that's a pretty good trajectory there. So we're always starting with sort of the durability of the value proposition We're next probably going to look at, is there an ownership group that we could partner with? So oftentimes we'll look and it just isn't a group of people that we could do deals with. And every deal is difficult. Every transaction is going to be hard. So you better start from a place of mutual respect and you better start from a place of understanding and common understanding where you want to go in the transaction or it's never going to get there. Next, of course, is the economics. We, We got to make sure it's going to be worthwhile for us to get involved in the business that we think we can do something with it. And I think a lot of businesses, more and more, we've gotten involved in looking at sort of the nitty gritty of these individual industries. There are just some industries where we can add more value than others. And so if we really can't add much value, it better be a very unusual situation that we're going to get involved in. And then ultimately price matters. What is the price in which we'll pay? What is the entry? Because we want to be humble, not only in the price we pay, but also in not using debt and treating people really well long-term. We think those are all ways to provide a lot more optionality down the road. And we think that's a really important thing. The name permanent
0: equity, what does that imply for what you're doing with these companies?
1: Yeah, well, we're in many ways the opposite of traditional private equity. So we're buying with no intention of selling the business. We're typically using no debt in our transactions. We like to keep the leadership team intact and augment ad around it and just try to treat people really well for the long term. So that's enabled by investors who give us their money for 30 years and certainly expect a return on that, but don't set a timeline on when we have to liquidate assets. And so we're able to buy with no intention of selling because we have functionally permanent capital. So we're going to dive into one of these portfolio companies, Selective Search. Why don't we introduce the deal by you describing what is this company? So Selective Search is the highest end matchmaking firm in the world. So the team, including the founder, Barbie Adler, came out of Executive Search. So if you know Executive Search, so think you're looking for a CEO, CFO, somebody typically high up important in the organization, you're looking to fill that slot You're gonna hire an executive search firm to go out and all the work that they would typically do. So, they're gonna go out and source candidates. They're gonna interview them. They're gonna have a lot of discussions with them. Then, they're gonna vet them, bring you a short list back, and then you're gonna kind of work with them and collaborate on that process. It's exactly like that, only for love. I remember when I first heard about the deal, Emily Holdman, who leads our deal team, she came into my office and she said, Hey, sit down, shut up. You're not gonna understand this business. Don't say a word. She came in and I was like, there's no way. And she was like, I told you, shut up. Just let me keep talking for a while. I thought there was no way. I'd never heard of really matchmaking. The only thing I had experienced at all was watching like Millionaire Matchmaker, I think one episode that my wife made me watch at one point. And that was my exposure to the matchmaking world. And all the preconceived notions that I had about what a matchmaking firm was were destroyed when we actually got to know the business. So when Emily came into your office and said, just sit down and listen,
0: what was it that you heard that changed your initial instinct in the attractiveness
1: of this company as an acquisition. I was trying to think about what the business model would actually be. I mean, it's like, are you hosting events and you have people kind of come to mixers? All the preconceived notions that I had from TV shows and from the movie Hitch, all those weird things, I'm like, there's no way that there's a business here. Now, when she said, hey, stop, it is matchmaking, but I have to tell you, think about executive search. Would we ever get involved in a highly specialized excellent executive search firm that specializes in maybe a very unusual niche in the world? Well, of course we would. That seems right up our alley. That's beautiful. And they've scaled well. It's a professional firm, highly successful, independent of us. Would that be interesting? Of course, that'd be interesting to us. Oh, okay. Well, that's what this is. So how does it work? Exactly like executive search. So you as a client... Come to Selective Search and say, I'm looking for a long-term committed monogamous relationship. So this is not a dating service. I'm looking for love. I want to be in a committed relationship. So that's the prerequisite number one two you know what you want or you at least have a ballpark idea so and maybe physical certain attributes which by the way are not always what you think they might be there's also intellectual side there's what lifestyle do you want to be with this person we haven't even had somebody who said hey look i lost my wife we love to travel the world i want to remarry i want to find somebody but i love to play golf and i want the person who i am together with to be a good golfer so not only am I looking for these attributes of age and geography, maybe educational background, but I also want them to be an under seven handicap golfer. And so that's an example of a very selective search. It's a search that's more difficult. And every time you put a limiter, an attribute on the person that you're looking for, obviously you're going to continually limit the pool and sometimes drastically. So the more difficult the search, the higher the price and we get into very unusual searches. Does the search typically come in from a man or a woman? Our clients are roughly 50 50. So, 50% of our clients are men and 50% are women. The client, as we call them, is the person who's hiring the firm, and we don't take money on both sides of the transaction. So, we work for the client, kind of like an executive search firm would. It would be unethical for a search firm to be on the payroll of people looking for jobs and people who are searching for people to fill those jobs, right? You create some bad incentives. And so what we do is we take money from one side and they are interested in finding that person. And then we have a whole database and we do outreach independently focused on whatever that need is. How does that compare with apps? So what I would say is there's a lot of different apps out there. All of them are automating in some ways and using algorithms to try to help people find each other. I mean, at the end of the day, whatever your desires are, and there's apps for anything you would want. What we're trying to do is we think that human touch and non-digital interaction provides a really great opportunity and a much better opportunity for long-term success. And I think that's borne out in the numbers. So 87% of the time that somebody signs up as a client of selective search, they end up in a long-term committed monogamous relationship. Experience with apps is just not even close to that. So the people who hire us are busy professionals. They value their time And this isn't, you just get assigned a matchmaker and the matchmaker says, ah, I feel like uh, in this database, this is the person, right? Almost like a Yenta model, right? Like that's not at all what this is. This is a very sophisticated system. It's exactly like executive search where you're surrounded by a team of three to five people, depending on the situation, who are doing intense research. They're profiling, they're doing interviews on your behalf. I mean, this is a very professional process, completely different than going on an application and swiping one direction or the other. What's the magic of that incredibly high success rate? They've been at this for a long time. They know what they're doing. After you know 20 plus years of doing this, you, you learn a lot, and they built very sophisticated systems. So again, how are executive search firms way better at finding executive talent than companies are, even very sophisticated companies? You know Why do some of the top companies in the world use executive search? Well, because frankly, the executive search firm's better at finding those people than they are. They can do it more efficiently, more cost-effectively, and the stakes are high. For love, it's the exact same thing. If you think about it, the people who are hiring us are happy to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars to find an executive for their firm. But then you think about it and they're like, oh, well, I don't want to pay whatever for, to find love. That doesn't make any sense. And it's like Absolutely. When you think about it, it actually makes way more sense to spend the money to find the love of your life than it is somebody who's going to work for you for a period of time. How does the economics of the business work? The price starts at $50,000, and we'll often have contracts that exceed half a million dollars. So kind of $50,000 to $500,000 is kind of the range. Obviously, the more specialized the search is, the higher the price. So if you're um, a 45-year-old in Boston in finance, and I'm interested in what I would say just like down the middle, I want to find the right person. That's probably going to be fifty, maybe seventy thousand dollars, depending on the situation. The more specialized you get, hey, I want to under handicap golfer who I want to relocate to South Florida and travel the world with me. That's a very different type of search. We don't publish exact stats around these things. What I can tell you is that we were between twelve and fifteen million dollars of revenue, pretty sustainably, and heading up from there. And in terms of annual basis, that's you know I would call it a hundred and twenty-five clients. It can depend on, of course, because the revenue mix. I mean, if you if you have a couple big clients, it's going to allow us not to take on quite a few smaller clients. So it depends on the situation, but that's kind of roughly where we were. How did you find this deal? We typically don't participate in auctions. We, in fact, we tell intermediaries, look, if you're going to send this out to 500 people and it's just whoever is the top bidder, like, don't bother. That's not the business we're in. But what we do tell intermediaries is bring us your weird stuff. In fact, that's one of the things we say is just bring us your weird and if you think about it it is a business that carries reputational risk as a private equity firm or let's say an independent sponsor or a search fund depending on the situation right that might go after a business like this taking this to a group of traditional investors and trying to get bank financing on a matchmaking firm is not exactly straightforward I mean, if I had the reaction that I had, and I like to think that I'm pretty open-minded, especially considering the breadth of businesses we've gotten involved in, I can only imagine if it's a search fund, if you took this business to a group of people who are used to investing in high recurring revenue software businesses and said, hey, I want to go buy a matchmaking firm. It would just be shut down immediately. Or a private equity firm that says, hey, by the way, there's really no natural buyers for these types of businesses like to resell it. So it's typically going to be a financial buyer. Our whole pitch is we're going to buy this firm and then somebody else who's a financial buyer is going to buy it from us as a financial buyer. That's not a really good pitch, right? As a private equity firm, especially when you have to sell it within a fairly short period of time, you know, two to five years. So for us, because we don't have to sell and because we can really take the long view on these businesses and not have to think about the sale process, it allows us to look at the business just truly as a business model in and of itself. And how can we assist and grow the firm over time? So I think for us, it's just a very different pitch. So that's what Emily did. She was in New York, had been in New York on a visit and was visiting with some intermediaries and said, what Permanent Equity is really interested in doing is finding weird, off the run, unusual things, maybe even stuff that has a little bit of fur on it, that we can work with them because of who we are and mitigate that risk. And the intermediary said, we've got one for you. This was a business that had tried to be sold once before. And sure enough, the buyers had taken them through a lengthy due diligence process, had promised a bunch of things, couldn't ultimately deliver on the equity or the debt. And that's pretty common in our area of the market. After an LOI signed in our area of the market, it's estimated that between 20 and 25% of deals close. So a very, very small percentage, is a percentage of people making a commitment to close actually close. And so for us, look, we're happy to get second. We're happy to come in and look at a deal that maybe has gone bust because there's a lot of things that we're doing so differently than traditional private equity that allows us to close when other people can't. So I'm hesitant to ask, but I think I have to. What was the diligence process
0: like to make sure that what you were seeing in the stats actually worked?
1: We did interviews with almost every single person on their staff. We looked at extensive files this is a very personal process. I don't want to get involved in people's business. No one at the firm here knows who our clients are. I mean, we'll know very broadly types of clients, but we didn't want to get involved in whose love life are we involved with or not. And especially because we deal with not only lawyers and doctors, professionals, we also deal with celebrities. A lot of people in the finance industry use selective search, deal with some very wealthy people. So it was good for us to be able to very broadly look at the profiles of them. And then we were able to go in and actually talk to some of the previous Clients. And that process was interesting to hear from their sides what was the good, what was the bad, what could have been improved. And look, the success rate was another one we had to verify. So we had to go back and say, okay, show us all the clients that you signed up. How do we know at the end of that process? And they showed us exactly how they offboard a client and what it looks like to renew a contract. A renewal process is also an interesting one, right? Because renewal means, well, you kind of were unsuccessful, but maybe unsuccessful for the right reasons. Typically, a contract is going to be a year long and limited to a certain number of matches. Now, most of the time, don't even get close to that time period and don't even get close to that number of matches, right? It's kind of the insurance policy. But look, occasionally, somebody will get into a relationship and the clock will run out on the time and they'll say, you know what? It actually didn't end up working out that person, but I love what you guys did. I believe in what you're doing. I want to work with you again. So can we do another contract? The company's happy to do that. So we went through and really diligence the people, we diligence the process, we looked at their technology stack, they did a full integration on Salesforce. I mean, this is not a unsophisticated sort of backroom operation. This was a highly professionalized firm already that we believed we could really add another layer of sophistication. It was also important to understand what is the talent base of the company. It was important to understand what are the power dynamics within the company? What's the history of the company? I mean, all the things you'd want to do in due diligence, right? Right. Once we made it past that, it was really just an excitement about the future and what could we do and partner together? What projects did we want to take on? So as you were doing that diligence,
0: you mentioned a lot of these businesses are kind of in that teenage years. What aspects of selective search did you see in that research process that you felt like there was something you could really move the needle on?
1: Yeah, I would say sales and marketing were a really big one. They were spending quite a bit of money on marketing as a percentage of revenue. And if you have ever flown and looked at magazines, so they were in a lot of the airline magazines. So if you look like there'll be matchmaking ads, those are us. Selective Search is typically the buyer of those ads. They were spending a lot of money in other magazines and sort of traditional media And then they had started spending quite a bit of money with a firm that promised them online leads. And we could see that their lead conversion was just not very good. They were generating a lot of volume of leads, but the quality of the leads were just not converting at nearly the same rate. So we knew that there was an opportunity just sort of in the marketing advertising space. The other thing was they had policies in place and for very good reason that they weren't really grading their leads. So if a lead came in, a matchmaker would then call them no matter what. So even if the person was clearly unqualified, the rules around it was that, hey, look, we don't know who's qualified and who's not. And we've got stories about person looked one way and got on the phone and they were actually a great client. So the policy of the firm was of just covering up as leads increased, it actually decreased the effectiveness of the sales team because the sales team was just trying to go out and just shotgun everything.
0: What did you see as some of the risks in the deal?
1: The risk is reputational risk. I mean, if you think about it, we are connecting people in a very personal, very intimate sort of way. We are coaching them and we're vetting them on both sides to be honorable and to be kind. But look, at the end of the day, love's messy. And I think that was just one of the things that I think the firm has shockingly little controversy that happens as a result of their matchmaking. But look, people get emotional and things happen and people's feelings get hurt. And so I think that was certainly a risk that you just don't know what you don't know. And what happens in this process was concerning, at least initially. It certainly got a lot more comfortable after understanding the vetting process and how detailed the interactions are. And one of the things I thought was really concerning, I guess, in the beginning was that we were sort of participating in something that felt unethical. If it was something that was just like, this is for wealthy people to basically be set up on a whole bunch of dates that's not something that I'm personally super excited about. Helping people find love, true long-term committed monogamous relationships, I'm super excited about that. I think that's a great value add to the world. Helping people have more meaningless sex, that's not something that I'm probably super excited about encouraging. So that was a concern. One of the things we learned in the diligence process was how they handle moving on to the next match. So, Ted, let's say that you're a client, you come in, here's the eight to 10 people that we think you'd be a good match for out of the thousands and hundreds of thousands that we can look at and see we vetted in. Here's the top five. You're then going to get one introduction at a time. That introduction is going to be highly connected. We're going to be involved in the process of when are you going on a date? How are those interactions looking? We're checking in with you often. So this is not sort of a, okay, you two go figure it out. I mean, they're in some cases setting up the dates or helping plan the dates, right? So this is a very involved in-depth process. And before you can move on to another introduction, you have to say, hey, I'm no longer interested in interacting with that person. I think that's not going to go anywhere. And the other person too has to acknowledge that that's taken place. So it has to be a double opt-out on both sides, and we will not make another introduction until we've heard from both sides. So you can't be dating three women at the same time or some woman dating four men at the same time or something like that. It's got to be one at a time, and it's got to be completely committed and focused on that person. How do you think
0: about the competitive dynamics with these apps or other similar services?
1: Yeah. So there are other matchmaking firms. I would say that matchmaking as a industry, if you want to call it that, is about as old as time. been a long time that people have been trying to connect people to find love and connect people in marriage. So there's a lot of competition if you think about it from that case. There's very few firms. There's one in Europe and another one in the United States that kind of are in the same ballpark of what we do. And I think we match up very competitively with both of them in terms of apps like we're very unconcerned with apps in fact almost all of our clients at some point have used apps and experienced i think what a lot of other people have which is you have to spend a lot of time and you have to wade through a lot of garbage to maybe find some diamond in the rough now look a lot of people they're happy to do that it can be exciting i think that wears pretty quickly on people you know i have a lot of friends now that are trying to get remarried Or maybe trying to get serious about love, maybe for the first time. And I don't hear a single one of them saying, oh man, you know what I absolutely love to do is go on Tinder. It's amazing. Or Match.com. It's been a fantastic experience, right? It just doesn't happen. There certainly are people who have found love, but it's always a, whoo, I had to wade through a lot of stuff to get to the right person. And look for people who are busy and successful, which is typically our client base. They just don't have time for that. They don't have the emotional energy for that. They've got a high opportunity cost on their time. And for them to be able to hire a team of people that can handle a lot of this stuff, is a no-brainer. I'd love
0: to turn to your actual acquisition of the company. What was the ownership of it like before you
1: got involved? Barbie owned the business. It's a traditional example for us of a great partnership. So she came to us and said, hey, own this business. I'm excited about the future of it. I don't want to go anywhere. I love what I do but I actually love the matchmaking. I don't love the business side. So I need help in scaling the firm. I need help in adding professionalization and I need help in recruiting top talent into the firm. And so that's exactly what we did. We helped hire an incredible CEO, Courtney Moore, who it's just been fantastic. She is the business side and Barbie's able to focus exclusively on matchmaking. Courtney handles everything else. And it really is a beautiful match between the two of them create a beautiful business partnership that we're able to help orchestrate and able to help scale systems and add sophistication.
0: What is the dynamic in negotiating a price with Barbie's baby?
1: She's been doing this for decades. How did that play out? We started having discussions with the leadership team there, really try to talk with Barbie about what does she want? What's the vision of the company? How do you think we could be involved? Is it something that we think from a long-term partnership could work out? We had to really understand her motives. I mean, you know, a lot of times sellers will come to us and say, hey, I want this. And in reality, they don't want that. They want something else. And so really trying to suss out what is the thing that she really wanted long-term and could we be a good partner and fulfill that was important. Anytime you're talking about money, it's hard. Not going to lie. It is a difficult process. And I think we all come with different expectations. And so actually in the selective search deal, we actually presented two very different offers. So the previous firm that had gotten involved was going to use a lot of debt. And of course, when you use a lot of debt, it allows the equity to roll over more at a cheaper price because you're levering up the balance sheet. We typically like to use no debt in our transactions. So we actually offered two offers and said, hey, we're indifferent to which one you choose Here's one that's debt-free, that we're just paying all cash at close. And then here's another one where we'll actually supply the debt and the equity. So we'll kind of do a unit tranche offer. And Barbie actually chose the one that had debt on it because it allowed her to roll over. And she felt like the debt was sustainable. We were able to be the debt holders. So we felt like we were paid for the risk we were taking. And we had 100% of the cash flow of the company, even though we didn't buy 100%, go towards us until the debt was paid off. And so it actually provided us with a really interesting opportunity to adapt to what their needs were and to be able to allow her to roll forward, but in a way that gave all the benefits of having debt on the balance sheet without any of the drawbacks. So as an example, in COVID, if we had had debt on the balance sheet, we would have been negotiating with the bank. I mean, everyone's business went off a cliff. Thinking about sort of March, April, May, June, no one knew what was going on. The economy shut down. If we had had two, two and a half times leverage on the balance sheet at that point, which is kind of like child's play for traditional private equity, but even that would have been extremely stressful for the business and wouldn't have allowed us to make those reinvestments that we needed to at that point to keep the business going. We were able to do because we were the debt holders to say, hey, look, we'll just pick the interest, stop all repayments. We'll just completely take that off. Don't worry about it. We'll set the debt aside and just let it pick over here, which completely freed up the business to be able to have all the free cash flow go towards keeping staff employed towards growing the business and reinvesting.
0: When you're going and buying a business like this, how does the pricing work for a smaller business compared to what you might see in the broader, say private equity markets?
1: As you look at The smaller end of the market, the typical range, depending on the situation, is between three and kind of seven times free cash flow. Some people use EBITDA. Obviously, of course, you've got a big variance in the cost of capital and and CapEx in that equation. So we try to normalize it to owner earnings, what really sticks to the business owner and is discretionary to either reinvest back in the business or for the business owner to distribute out, right? We're typically paying, I would say, in that four to six range. And Selective Search was right in that range what did you see
0: once you owned the business of the different ways that you thought you could contribute
1: yeah i mean i think that we were able to through courtney and in concert with Barbie, add a level of professionalism to just how the firm is being built long term. So, oftentimes in these small companies, roles overlap and there's a lot of like sort of messiness between roles in the organization. We're able to help separate those off. And as a firm grows, you want to specialize. So, we're able to bring in specialty talent to focus on each kind of key area of the business and upgrade all their systems. So, upgrade their banking relationships getting line the credit in place, getting much more analytical about the type of real estate we want to invest in. How are we thinking about incentives for the team in terms of achieving the goals that we had set out for the firm? Each one of those things sounds small, but it's a lot of work. I mean, each one of those is a robust change in the organization. And we mentioned this a little bit before. They were spending quite a bit of money with a marquee ad agency. And look, there are a lot of good ad agencies out there. And I'm sure this ad agency does good work for other people. We were just a small fish in a very big pond for them, and we just weren't getting the talent or the results that we needed to get. So we went through a pretty arduous process of evaluating the agency, trying to work with them to improve the performance that they were providing, and ultimately pulled the contract from them. We hired internally as a result of that and really used our team. And this is pretty common. What we'll do is in high impact, low frequency projects, we're happy to get involved. So is it important that Selective Search has a core competency of changing out ad agencies? I don't think so. That doesn't make them a better firm. So it's a very low frequency, but it's a high impact project. So we were able to completely gut redesign their entire marketing program. We were able to hire talent internally. We were able to use some of the talents on our staff that had experience in those types of activities to kind of rebuild and rebrand. We changed a lot of the imagery. We just tried to move it in a direction that we felt was more professional more sort of long-term brand building. We also instituted a pretty robust online lead gen program and then did that top grading of leads. We identified through regression analysis all the different factors that go into a good client. And turns out that about 10% of the leads yielded a high rate of clients. And so we were able to grade those and then basically create a tiering system where all the salespeople first tackled the first tier and then obviously went to the second, then the third tier. You know, of course, everyone got touched, but the lower the tier sort of grading, the more automated the process was. So we were able to install sort of an automated system that would respond. And then if somebody went through a process there, they would be then bumped up in grading. So like, let's say a, a tier three was somebody who very low likelihood that they'd be a good client, but then they exhibited certain behaviors. They would then get bumped up to a two or to one. So the combination of all of that was able to really move it in a uh, positive direction. We've been partners with them since mid-2019. So, I mean, we're pushing four years, almost exactly. And it's been a beautiful thing. I mean, in COVID, it was rough. It was really tough. I mean, if you think about a business that is dependent upon people physically seeing each other, there was a period of time there where it was not a good situation. And we were able to help work through that with them as well. I mean, I think that if you look at when we got involved... I mean, it was only six, seven months later that COVID hit. So it was not a long period of time. And we were already working on a lot of these changes. But for a period of time there, we had to hunker back down and really get lean and try to figure out how are we going to make it through. I'm proud of the team. A lot of our competitors just shut down in that process. They said, screw it. It's not worth it. We're just going to lay off the entire staff. We're going to just basically go dormant and then come back alive whenever people can get matched again. We took the exact opposite approach and a technology first approach and tried to pioneer new ways of basically saying, hey, now is the time. You're lonely. You're isolated. Now is the time to actually embrace it. And so we got a lot of people in that time period that never would have engaged with a matchmaking service that are happily married now as a result of it. So it was a really cool, never miss the opportunity for good crisis. And that was a way that we could then help the firm long-term.
0: And as you think about scaling What does that take in terms of the team that is in place or needs to be in place to execute?
1: One of the things that we've been excited about is as the sophistication of the firm has increased and the systems have increased, the ability for each matchmaker to take on new clients has also increased as well. So the more organized we can be and the more professional we can have the team, uh, the more the capacity. So that's been a driver of the business as well. It really depends on the style. It's hard to say exactly how much a matchmaker can take on. It's a little bit of a feel because, of course, somebody who's going to be a half million dollar client is going to need a different type of service than somebody who's getting a $50,000 contract. So it just really depends on the individual situation. So now you're
0: four years in. We've talked about some of the changes you made. The bumps in the road of COVID, as you look out from here, what are you thinking about doing with the business?
1: I think that we're on a good growth trajectory. We feel really great about the team. A lot of these businesses that we own, if you can just compound over a long period of time and just provide stability, the outcomes are fantastic for everyone, for the buyer, for the seller, for everyone involved, really everything. I would say the holy grail for us in that business, we always have these like sort of big goals. If we can kind of shift things. The big goal would be looking at matchmaking as being a core service that companies would offer to employees, almost like an insurance product. If you think about it, the number one factor in happiness is being in a long-term committed monogamous relationship. Every study says that you're healthier, you're happier, you're more productive at work. And yet we treat that, and for very good reasons, as sort of being taboo, like, well, that's your personal life. Keep your personal life at home. Don't bring that into the office. I think we're seeing a shift in that and we're hoping that Selective can capitalize on that shift in being able to go to companies and say, look, the best thing you can do for a top performing executive who is going through potentially a divorce or a death, being able when the time is right to be able to offer them services where they can stay focused on work and be able to really enhance their personal lives. Like, What an incredible gift to that employee and it serves the company very well. So I think that that is the next kind of frontier, and we're starting to think about pioneering products in that way. I would say the other area that we've looked at, and we've not really, because business has been so good, kind of the core business, but what we've looked at is potentially going down market. And I mean, look, $50,000 is a lot of money as a starter, and it goes up from there. Let's just call it what it is. You have to be a person of significant means in order to access selective search services. And in fact, the number one reason why people don't choose selective search is the price. And I mean, look, it's worth it, but it's still expensive. There's some things that we have been experimenting with and kind of testing and trying to skinny down the product in certain situations to be able to offer sort of a light program that could get that price down to maybe be half or even less than that. That could then access another tranche of people that we think could be benefited from the programs.
0: You mentioned a similar firm, one in Europe and one in the U.S., How have you thought about consolidation?
1: Yeah, we've thought about it. It doesn't particularly make sense, I don't think, in this way, in the sense that we've got robust systems. We can hire more matchmakers. We can access talent. We can go out. And we are growing the firm. It's such greenfield that it's not really like a zero-sum, like you're taking market share. It's not like the right way to think about it. So I feel like where consolidation really makes sense is when it's sort of a fixed pie and you're trying to add on more pie Slices to your side of the pie to get more synergies into the business. With this, it doesn't really add synergies to buy other firms or to have mergers for the most part. There might be products that we might add down the road, but organic growth is actually more valuable, I think, than acquisitive growth. And Really as an industry, yes, they're competition, but we don't actually look at them necessarily as competition in the traditional sense. Like we want them to be successful. The more successful those other firms can be, the more successful the industry as a whole. The biggest competitor to using selective search is not that they go to another firm, it's that they don't use a matchmaker. So we want to encourage more and more people to use a matchmaking firm and sort of destigmatize it. That to me is the path to growth. How do you think about
0: rolling out those marketing messages, whether it's this new corporate product initiative or just broadening people's awareness of the business?
1: We have marketing efforts that are, I would say, directed at people in the moment that are interested in finding love, of course, but we also are trying to normalize what matchmaking is as an industry. And there's a lot of press hits. I mean, so we have a pretty robust PR campaigns that we try to institute and you'll so you'll see Barbie as an example quoted in Forbes or The Wall Street Journal I mean, you know it's often around Valentine's Day or something like that it's kind of a cute cheeky piece in one of those but try to normalize that this isn't like sort of a backwater weird thing that you should keep hidden this is something that should be celebrated in the same way that finding great executives for a company there's nothing weird about it, it just happens to be that you're finding them for a different context
0: as you look out owning this business, What are the circumstances that might cause you to decide to sell?
1: I would say if we got sideways somehow with the leadership of the firm, and we have a great relationship with them. I mean, Barbie has become a dear friend. Courtney's fantastic. We love working with them. But I guess ultimately, if they didn't feel like our ownership and our involvement in the firm was healthy and productive and value additive, we don't want to be partners with people who don't want to be partners with us. So I think that would probably be... One, two, I could create a scenario where somebody else is a better owner of the firm than we are. There are some pretty robust roll-ups of the app dating industry, and a lot of them have tried to roll out high-end services through the years, and all of them have failed at doing this. It's just a very different business, a very different mentality, a very different set of circumstances and systems that you have to build. The talent pool is completely different. You need to access. So I could see one of those coming to us and us having just a frank discussion amongst the ownership group and say, do we think that we would be better off as an organization to help serve more people? And do we think that we would be able to still maintain an autonomy if we went with one of those? That would be an interesting interesting approach. I mean, we have had some discussions With people, frankly, in those organizations. And it's never gotten to the point where we've really had to make a decision. And we're just happy to continue to go and grow the business.
0: What have been your biggest lessons learned from working with this company the last couple of
1: years? Gosh, I would say the power of relationships is unbelievable. I mean, every time I think that relationships are important, and no matter how important I think they are, they're always more important. You know, the relationship. In COVID, even though we hadn't owned the business very long, we'd spent quite a bit of time together prior to COVID and things got really tough. It was stressful. And I think it was an early testing of the relationship that we had with Barbie and with the team there. It was incredibly important. Let's put it that way. And I think that what they found was a firm that was going to really help support them through thick and thin and be long-term and generous when we didn't have to be and do everything we could to help make the firm better. And what we found in Barbie and the team there was a team that was committed to building this long-term, cared deeply about their clients, and um, are going to be great partners long-term. So, I mean, it was an early testing that I really feel like has paid off in the subsequent years in terms of a trust to make changes and to try and test new things. And by the way, every time you test and try new things, there's going to be failures. If you're not failing as you're building... You're not taking enough risk, So I think that's been just the power of relationship and being able to be in, in a deeper relationship than I think a traditional private equity firm financial buyer would be in. What were
0: some of those failures that you've experienced together?
1: We've had some hires that really haven't worked out. We've tested new avenues and really try to bring on talent. Even today, I mean, at Permanent Equity, I would say I've hired a lot of people through the years. And I think at best you can get to about 50%. There's about a 50% chance that somebody's going to work out. And so, you know, we've brought on people to the firm and they've not worked out. And we've had to be really honest and transparent about who's performing, who's not, and what's the upside of the person, you know, sort of not only current performance, but also trajectory of the business. We've tried to roll out products and test different areas that just haven't worked out. I mean, we try to test, like I said, down market at a certain point it just didn't work. We tried new lead generation strategies and to be able to engage with potential clients in ways that just didn't work out. We tried to roll out sort of an advisor program where we would get people from around the country that would help advise and in, in not only in referring clients over, but also potential matches. It just didn't work. I mean, we got a whole bunch of people excited about it and it just fell flat on its face. So I feel like that core of the business, and that's the beauty of having a strong core business is it's strong and it can Provide opportunity to test and try. And look, things don't work out. You come back to home base and you start over again.
0: All right, Brent, got one last question for you. What's your favorite aspect of private equity?
1: I think just the diversity of the people I get to meet with. So we have businesses around the country. You know, the United States is so interesting. I mean, people I think from outside the United States look at it as like a monolith, right? It's the US, sort of Americana. I got to tell you, traveling around the country, I've been to, I feel like every, backwater place in the country at this point over the last 15 years and rural Minnesota and Louisiana and South Florida and New York and Maine are very different places. Getting to just meet the people and experience the cultures and taste the different food. I feel like I have the best job in the world. I get to work with fantastic people who are super smart and driven. They've been successful and we get to help shepherd their families through a really important and difficult time and try to do it in a way that builds long-term friendships and relationships. So I love it. Well, Brent, really
0: appreciate you coming back on and sharing this very interesting story. <laughs> it's
1: like the search. <laughs> Absolutely, Ted, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.